So how to love a porcupine? We, we're going to talk about forgiveness for the next two Sundays. And uh, I mean, we've spoken about forgiveness many times, and we will continue to speak about forgiveness many times. Uh, the other day, Solvin, he was just going through the Lord's Prayer, going very exegetically, preaching through the Lord's Prayer. And at the end, when it was time for Q&A, guess what everybody was asking him about? Uh, about this forgiveness thing. Can I just get a little bit more clarity? And that's actually quite strange because in the, in, in the Lord's Prayer, you've got the whole thing about God in heaven, which is a pretty massive claim. You've got the whole thing about daily bread, provision. You've got the whole thing about delivering us from evil. Yet the thing that resonated most with people is not resonated. The thing that they, they, they struggled with most is the whole thing of forgiveness. In our cell group, and we've got a couple of cell groups, if you, if you want to be in a cell group, then, then please talk to Gior or to me afterwards, and we'll get you in. Because one of the things that you do before you, you start with the Bible study is you go around and you ask everybody, how's your week? What's been a high point? What's been a low point? And I got one of my friends uh, to come with. He's from out of town. He joined us, uh, our cell group. And afterwards, he told me, you realize that all your respective lows were family-related. <laughs> you, you, you had beef with some member of, of the family. And that made me realize that Christmas is around the corner, and it's an event where, whether we like it or not, family is very much involved, and there's conflict. And I am willing to bet Pete Hines' car that you will go, when you come to those cell groups early January, and they give their lows, they're going to say, my uncle really stretched me. Or it ended just in time, otherwise there would have been a murder. You know, it will be that kind of thing because there are all sorts of tensions that just presents itself when, when, family, when, family is, when family is around. Now look, if you can't identify, if you can't identify with, uh, with what I just said, conflict, family, then hopefully you identify that you've got conflict, you've had difficult people in your hostel perhaps, in your house, in your work place, in your family, in your complex where you live, on the roads, parliament, home affairs, neighborhood, faculty. Who can identify with any of this? You've got difficult people in those spaces. If you didn't put up your hand, please leave. We, uh, we, we focus on sinners here, and you obviously don't need our help. Now, Christians... Christians have always said, forgive, forgive. That's what one needs to do. One must forgive indiscriminately. And we almost take that for granted. But what's interesting is that forgiveness wasn't always the norm. In the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, which is the world in which Christianity first began to, to really take hold, uh, forgiveness was really not anything like, we, like what we understand it today. So let me just do a little thought experiment. If, if there's an old lady in the first century in, let's say, Athens, and she's walking there with her handbag, and somebody asks you, will you steal it? Then an ancient good old Greek would say, no, I won't steal it because it's bad for my honor. I won't, I'll, I'll lose honor in my own eyes. It won't be an honorable thing to do. Other people will also see me as problematic, and I will lose honor. If you ask a Christian today why it's a bad idea to steal the old lady's handbag, they will say, because it's not an act of love. 
it will hurt her in the process. So she will, she, she will be hurt um, through this crime. It's the same result, but can you see the difference in motivation in the ancient world? It is about the honor. It is about me. It is about, um, I'm not going to do that because it's going to be bad, be bad for my honor. But I think as soon as Christianity started to define how we engage morally, instead of just putting it in the space of honor-shame culture, it said, no, one must act from a place of love. You have to will the good of the other, and that's not, that's not um, willing the good of, of the other. Now, here's something that I find interesting. You had words like forgiveness in the ancient world, but they didn't talk about forgiveness in the sense of, in, in, in the same sense that we mean it today. When Aristotle or some of these other philosophers spoke about forgiveness, they more referred to, I'll excuse you, I'll pardon you. And the reason why they said you must pardon people, you must excuse people, was because it is good for your honor to not really relate to these little things that's beneath you. Does that make sense? So it's not the same as forgiveness. It's got nothing to do with an attempt to try and get reconciliation again. It was more a thing of, for your honor to be preserved, you need to, you need to deal with these people and these acts with contempt. Does that make sense? Now, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that Christianity came and they said, no, when you forgive, it is a gift of, to the other people, to the other person. It is an opportunity to be reconciled, to embrace, to be united. And for a very long time, this was the norm. And there's this philosopher, she's a, she's a secular Jewish philosopher called Hannah Arendt. And she's a very interesting thinker, Louise Uzier, she's, she's a big fan. And she said, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. When he spoke about forgiveness, there was nothing like it before. And we as secular people should embrace that. And for a long time, secular people embraced this whole ethic of forgiveness and we've been running on those fumes for a long time now, and it is fast running out. And I've realized that there's been this shift in terms of forgiveness. When I counseled friends of mine who are going through something really difficult, where their family wronged them in the most horrible, imaginable way, and I said, look, we need to condemn what happened, there must be a path of restoration. We need, to, uh, we need to have boundaries. Yes, yes, yes. But ultimately, this must end in reconciliation. You must hope that this person is willing to embrace, willing to, to, to work through their own issues, and then you guys come together and, 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 and there's embrace. And they told me that it was completely at odds with what they heard from their psychologist because they had to go get therapy. The, the psychologist said, no, 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 this is not what you need right now. You don't need that kind of toxic people in your life. Um, and it's family members who, who did it, very close family, as a matter of fact. And they, they said, this is not what you need in your life right now. This is not good for you. You need to look after yourself right now. Do you guys recognize the language? That is very typical of the, 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 this sort of psychotherapy that's, that's around these days. It's not just in psychotherapy that forgiveness has been rejected. For a very long time, 
people like Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela were hailed across the globe for just radical forgiveness and, and the fact that this country is a little bit of a miracle in the sense that it's the first time that power was transitioned and you didn't have war, you didn't have revenge. And the, the figures who were the poster boys of that movement were Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela. Tutu famously said there's no future without forgiveness and they won Nobel Prize, uh, Peace Prizes for it. But now you've got a lot of young activists rejecting that forgiveness, calling it uh, just another way of whites preserving their power. It's just another way of preserving uh, whiteness, protecting whiteness. And if you use reconciliation and forgiveness in the humanities these days at many of our universities, you must expect to be met with a lot of scorn because that's outdated. That's not, that's not the way that we relate in the, um, you know, in, in, in the 21st century. There's a, there's a writer, her name is Sabine Birdsong, and she wrote an article that I found interesting called To Hell with Forgiveness Culture. And it's kind of ironic because she's got the most lovely surname, Birdsong. And then she writes the article, To Hell with Forgiveness Culture. And in it, she says that she blames this obsession with forgiveness. She, she puts the blame at the feet of Christianity. It's Christianity that gave us this obsession. She says, Western culture has a deeply ingrained religious hangover from Christianity. And it, manifest, it manifests itself in edicts like forgive and forget, turn the other cheek. And we even condemn people who do not forgive as poisoning themselves. This is tantamount to another Abrahamic culturally ingrained guilt trip. In short, it is victim blaming. People love a good redemption story. This narrative is nothing but a mere plot to give character depth to perpetrators at the expense of their victims. She, stopped, she, she ends her, her article by saying, stop idealizing the pseudo-spiritual fairy tale of redemption and forgiveness over the inherent right of victims. So this is a sentiment that a lot of people are sharing across the globe in relation to, to various issues. I mean, we are, we are well-versed with Me Too movements and Black Lives Matter movements and the LGBTQIA plus uh, activist movements. And one can imagine that in a, in a culture where forgiveness, it, people are very suspicious about forgiveness, one can see that it becomes difficult to forgive. It becomes even difficult to talk about forgiveness. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to look at a couple of Bible passages as we try and look at what Jesus taught us about forgiveness. And we're going to look at quite a few, and we're going to try and reconstruct a, a scene that I think belongs together. So you guys know, have you ever heard of the Synoptic Gospels? The Synoptic Gospels is to say, it, it's, it's another way of referring to Matthew, Luke, and uh, Mark and Luke. And they say that you can sort of put these guys together and you can figure out roughly the chronology of, of what happened in, in the life of Jesus. And we've got a couple of scenes that, that, that relate, and there are a lot of parallels. And I want to try and do something like that when it comes to this famous teaching on forgiveness. 
Now, the first bit I want to read comes from Matthew 18. So it says this, and this should sound familiar to you guys if you were here last week. Matthew 18 from verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like a child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, after Jesus talks about children and the fact that children are, 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 are little beings that we need to emulate when it comes to the spiritual life in you know, a, a variety of, of issues, then I want us to jump to Luke 17. Now, in Luke 17, there's this I, I, I think they belong to, together, and it, it sort of follows from here. So Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins again, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turn to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Now, we're going to continue reading in a bit. What's interesting is this. Last week, we spoke about all of the spiritual lessons that kids can potentially give us, teach us. And one of the things that occurred to me is that forgiveness is something kids can teach us as well. The fact that, that Jesus talks about become like a child and then goes into a, a longer argument that's basically just about forgiveness, I don't think is a coincidence. If you know anything about kids, their egos are not really developed enough to hold a grudge. They are super quick to just forgive. I mean, they fight very quickly as well, so we must be very careful about taking this, this analogy too far. But, I mean, my, my boy would fight, and then I would put him in the car, and he would scream to be reconciled with the boy he just fought with. He just wants to go be you know, friends with him again. And you've got, this, you've got this cycle. And I think it's got something to do with the fact that you, you took my toy, uh, but now you're laughing at the same thing as I'm doing, and you've got a dinosaur, which is kind of funny, and now we're friends again. And to not take ourselves seriously enough to be able to forgive as quickly as that is maybe something that we need to emulate. Whom of you have seen a series called Ted Lasso? Can I just see Ted Lasso? It's just... Two of you guys. Okay, I haven't seen it either. Um, I'm just checking because it's a very bad show, and I just want to see who in my congregation is watching. Uh, this, this Ted Lazo is this... I, I, haven't, I haven't watched it, uh, but I've got this very bad habit of reading series. So what I would do is I, won't, I, don't, I don't watch it. I just want to read what's the synopsis, what's it about. And, and then I go and read the, the spoilers and watch a trailer or two or scene or two, and then I can talk to guys like Richard and, and Henning. Now, there's this one scene in it that's very interesting. This Ted Lazo is a very childlike character. He's very naive, very silly. And it's very easy to almost say he's stupid, he's dumb. But that will be an oversimplification as the series progresses. And at one point... He's, the, 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 the synopsis, by the way, is he's an American football coach, 
and then a British football club asked him to come and coach there. Now, if you know anything about football, you'll know that it's got very different meanings in America and in England. So he's an American football coach who needs to now coach what we call soccer, and he's got no idea what he's doing. And it later becomes apparent, spoiler alert, that the, the owner of the club who got him there is trying to sabotage the club because she's trying to get back at her husband. Um, her her ex-husband was obsessed with the club, so she's trying to sabotage it. And now, as you can expect, Ted Lazo is actually you know, getting some good results and it's not going to plan, and she's trying to sabotage it all the way. And at one point, she confesses. She says, Ted, I've got something terrible that I need to tell you. And she confesses the whole thing. And this guy is visibly broken. He's like, geez, that's just horrible. Why would you, why would you do that? And then, after he has a moment, he stands up and he says, hell, heck, I'm, I'm doing a very bad American accent here. So, if you're American, don't be offended. But he um, says, I forgive you. And she's like, what? How can you forgive me? I've been sabotaging you. I've been trying my best to, 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 to get rid of you and to get rid of this club at every possible. And he just says, I forgive you. And then he says, hell, divorce makes us do stupid things. Um, and then he, then he puts his hand out, says, we're fine. And then she just embraces him. Like, I'm not going to just shake your hand. I can't believe that you're extending this forgiveness. And I think it's got something to do with the fact that this guy who's very naive, is also very childlike. And it's very easy for him to forgive. It's like, oh man, that was really messed up. Oh, hell, I forgive you. Let's move on. And that's perhaps something that we need to emulate in the spiritual life. The second part that we read, so we, 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 we first read that little bit about kids. And then we went over to Jesus saying, if, if you need to forgive, uh, you need to forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And the disciples are not very excited about that. And they say, Lord, give us faith. <laughs> now, here's what's interesting. The disciples never say, when Jesus says, please heal that person, they never say, Lord, give us faith. But when he, Jesus says, forgive that person, they say, Lord, give us faith. <laughs> so it's easier to heal someone, you know, if you're walking around Jesus, than to forgive someone. It's hard work. So I find this exclamation, this, this cry so funny, but also so true, because forgiveness is really, really hard. And maybe the disciples are not at a bad spot when they say, just give us faith. Now, there's something else that's, that's, that's interesting. I'm not sure if you guys picked it up, but you've got that famous line, which is this, uh, this, this line about having amazing faith, which is, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you will be able to toss this mulberry tree into the sea. And in the Lucan context, that is related to forgiveness. So we often think, I'm not sure if you guys were as stupid as I, but I, I tried to practice my faith when I was a little boy by going in the backyard, and we had a little hill, and I actually tried to toss that hill um, into the sea multiple times, and it, it worked twice, no. But the... <laughs> The, the, the point is that it's this desire um, to, we, we, we think it's, it's this very triumphalist faith, and if you just have faith, then you will just proclaim it over this person and they will live. But in the Lucan context, it is in reference to forgiveness and the fact that that is really, really, really difficult to do. Now, I want to continue to reconstruct 
this passage that we are looking at because Jesus just said, be like a child. Then he says, you need to forgive over and over again. The disciples say, this is too difficult, give us faith. And then Peter is trying to get some clarity out of the situation. He's a leader, so he's going to just make sure that they, they figure out what's going on. So he starts off by saying, then Peter came up to him and said, this is Matthew 18 from verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? <laughs> now, what's going on here? Peter's trying to get clarity. There was a Jewish rule that said, you need to forgive three times. So Peter sees Jesus and he says, this guy is pretty serious about forgiveness. Hmm. I'm going to more than double it. I'm going to use seven because seven is also a complete number. So, so this is really going to impress Jesus. So he says, Can we, must I forgive as many as seven times? And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, friends, there are some of you who are engineers. That does not mean 490. Okay, it means again and again and again and again. Then Jesus told them this story. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, now friends, 10,000 talents, we don't recognize that. That sounds very strange. That was the equivalent of 60 million denarii. A denarii was a day's wage in those days. So it's basically saying the servant owed the king a gazillion dollars. No, right? So he's just making up a stupid sum when he says 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that, that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. Again, if you're in the first century listening to the story, it's like, <laughs> you know, you're not going to pay any of that. I mean, the whole countries didn't pay that much tax to Rome. So, so, so this can't even be compared to a gross domestic product. And out of pity for him, the master of this, that servant released him and forgave him his debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So that would be sort of three months minimum wage. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt because you pleaded with me and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother from your heart. This very famous parable of the, the unforgiving servant. So Jesus is telling this, this story, and hopefully by now you guys can see that the, the main point is that this first offense, the initial debt, is completely unpayable. There is no way that you can do anything about it. And then it is trying to say 
that this is how Christian forgiveness differs from secular forgiveness. Christian forgiveness has a vertical dimension, where secular forgiveness only has a horizontal dimension. What I mean by that is, before we can talk about how to forgive others, and that's what we're going to focus on next week, before we can talk about forgiving others, a Christian must understand what this vertical forgiveness looks like, what it means that Christ forgave us our sins. Because if you really understand just something of that, it's going to make these horizontal interactions so much easier. There's one last passage that I want us to read just to try and complete this scene, because in my imagination, what happened next is Jesus, they said, it's too much, we can't do this. And then Jesus told them uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And, and then he says this. This is in, in Luke 17. The, the, the title is Unworthy Servants. It's verse 7. It's very quick. He just says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Oh dear. Will he not rather say to him, perhaps uh, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty." That little parable, I just want to explain it to you. I've never realized it. But it's basically just saying, oh, by the way, this thing that is so difficult, forgiveness, that is sort of the baseline of the kingdom of God. That is sort of the minimum requirements of what I expect of you. You must decide if you want to follow me or not. If you follow me, you need to forgive. So he, he talks about forgiveness. The disciples say, it's too difficult he gives them a parable, and then he gives them another parable, saying, don't think you're even special if you are able to do this. This is what I expect of you. Do you guys understand? Jesus is just making it even h- harsher on us. This is, you, you, you haven't reached a, a spiritual uh, um, level when you are able to forgive. Jesus says, this is the basics of what I, of what I require. Now, friends, when we talk about this, the importance of this vertical forgiveness, that is something that many people reject. A lot of secular people will say that there's nothing that I need to repent of. There's nothing that needs to be forgiven. We are now free of the superstitious religious guilt. Morality, in any case, is relative, and we can live guilt-free. So this whole thing about vertical forgiveness is, is nonsense. You know what's interesting? Do yourself a favor. Don't do it now because you're supposed to listen. But when you go home, just Google books on guilt and shame. And you're going to find a lot of books on guilt and shame. A lot of secular books on guilt and shame. Maybe some of you uh, ran into Brene Brown a couple of years ago. She was very, she was very hot in uh, sort of the intellectual sense of the word where... Uh, you know, people were responding quite well to her teaching, and she was talking about vulnerability and guilt and shame, etc. So it became very fashionable. If you go into exclusive books, have a look. You will find a lot on this loving yourself. Don't be so hard on yourself. Don't feel so guilty. Don't constantly feel ashamed, etc., etc. Now, as Christians, we say that guilt that you're feeling 
is just a nagging sense that even though you've gotten rid of God, you know there's something wrong with you. You know there's something wrong. You know that you're not living up to, to your own expectation or other people's expectations or some sort of imaginary expectation. There is this deep fear in everyone that if you can see the real me, then you are going to reject me. If you see me naked, if you see me without all of my fig leaves trying to create an image that I project, if you see me without those things, you will reject me. So what do we do? We cover ourselves. We cover ourselves with maybe trying to read a lot of books so that you sound interesting when you talk to people. Or, you know, maybe your career hasn't gone the way that you planned, but at least you're a good parent, you're a good mother, you're a good father. Or, uh, you know what, I, I'm, not, I'm not looking great, but I, I look better than my high school sweetheart's wife or, or husband. I saw it on Facebook and it's not pretty, you know. Uh, at least I'm hardworking or, or whatever the case may be. We prop ourselves up with all of these things. Why? Because we sense, we know that there's something wrong. Maybe you guys are not convinced. Let me say, tell you that I've de developed a device that will play all of your thoughts of the last 72 hours on this projector so that we can just see what you thought about in the last 72 hours. Who would be okay with that? All right, good. I, I can't really see if anybody's putting up their hands. Um, but what you will see are thoughts of resentment. You'll see thoughts of road rage, superficiality, just thinking about really stupid stuff. You will see thoughts of lust, of jealousy, of discontent, of judgment. And you know what? You will see very little prayer thoughts on that screen. Am I right? We are trying, we, we know that there is something fundamentally wrong with us. And we've got this deep desire to be declared innocent, to, to be declared good. There's this wonderful book that I'm reading at the moment of Tim Keller, and he He's exploring this, this, uh, this need of ours to, to feel good, to be declared innocent. And he, he seems to suggest that a lot of what one is seeing in the identity politics space sort of amounts to this, in the sense that people are feeling this intense shame, and then there's this very virtue-signalous approach where you're constantly trying to, to tell people, look, I'm good, I'm... I'm not a homophobe, I'm not a racist, I'm not a sexist, and th that is reflected in your tweets, you know, in, in all of your social media uh, accounts, and we, we desperately want somebody to just say, you're okay, you're good, you're an ally, or you're woke, or, 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 or whatever these things might be. And I'm not trying to say it to be completely dismissive of those causes, but it has it has become very interesting from a sociological perspective. And one of the reasons I think it's become interesting like that is because there's this deep shame that you see in society and there's this deep desire to get somebody to declare us innocent, to say that we are justified, to say that we are okay. Keller says, it is a secular version of Philippians 2.12. It's pe people working out their salvation in fear and trembling. <laughs> Does that make sense? 
it's really working out their salvation in fear and trembling, and you are very scared, and you're walking on eggshells, and you're desperately trying to be a good person, you desperately want other people to recognize that, and you realize that there's shame, and there, there are a lot of things wrong with you, and you, you want other people to say, you're not like that, and a lot of what's happening in the world today is people are constantly telling everyone on, again, social media, who the bad guys are, who the bad guys are, because at least then I don't feel as naked in that space. At least then I feel okay because I'm pointing the finger somewhere else. I think people, friends, are doing this, working out their salvation in fear and trembling in all sorts of spaces, whether it's family, whether it's religion, whether it is trying to get more degrees, whether it is uh, work, whatever it might be, this is the human condition. Now, back to the whole issue of forgiveness. We will not be able to forgive horizontally. We will not be able to forgive each other sustainably if we do not understand vertical forgiveness. That is what we need to, need to understand. I recently, recently had a family fight and it's, it's very silly. It's like, uh, if I, I'm not even going to tell you the family fight because then you're going to say, you know, come on, there are people with real problems. But we had a family fight. Now egos were involved. And, and one of the accusations that I got was that, that people feel very judged by me you know, in the family. And they're obviously wrong. And I, I judged, <laughs> judged them for thinking that. But... Uh, we've got this Christmas coming up and I've been really excited about you know just being that, that, that whole festive season just keeping my mouth shut because then I can't judge and I will ruin the atmosphere for everyone as well and there's something about that thought that sounds very satisfying and the more I think about it things I, I, I'm thinking geez it sounds horrible it's going to be the worst Christmas ever if I'm just going to have this protest by not speaking at all. And it reminded me of this parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Where does he end up? Where, where does the unforgiving servant end up? In jail. And my, my stupid plan for December is a jail of my own making, isn't it? I'm locking the keys in from the, I'm, I'm locking the door from the inside. Okay, I'll show you guys. I'm, I'm holding on to this little bit of resentment. You guys uh, have your ideas about me, so I'm going to show you. That's what happens with an unforgiving heart. You end up in a jail of your own making. When we read this parable of the unforgiving servant, we need to read it the same way that Nathan caught David in the book of Samuel. So Nathan goes to Sam, uh, Nathan goes to David. David has just cheated on his wife. Uh, well, you know, cheated on his wives, <laughs> and uh, he's uh, he's been he's been uh, he's an adulterer. He's a murderer, and and he he is confronted with a parable. Nathan says, "There's this." There's this young little person, he's got a lamb, and that's the only thing he has. And it's a very emotive uh, parable. And eventually, David gets very angry, and he says, 
well, I know what we must do with that person. We need to throw him in, in jail, and he must pay every last cent. It sounds very similar to the parable of the unforgiving servant, as a matter of fact. And then Nathan just says these words, you're the man. And he's not saying it in the cool sense of you're the man. He's saying, you're the man that I'm talking about in this parable. When I read the story of the unforgiving servant, as I'm plotting revenge for Christmas, you know what line I heard in the back of my head? You're the man. You're the person. This parable is about us. When we are not able to forgive our family, our friends on a horizontal level, it means that we haven't really figured out, contemplated, meditated on what it means to be forgiven by Jesus. That forgiveness came at a massive cost. And the symbol for the cost at which that forgiveness came is the cross. I, I recently, when we were doing a, a tour, I can't remember where, there's this young teacher, I think she's originally from Uruguay, and she's, she's, she teaches at the KZN school, a very talented um, young teacher, and I enjoy talking to her, she's, a very, she's, she's an agnostic. And she told me that she really struggles with this whole idea that Jesus had to die on the cross to forgive us. Why couldn't God just forgive us? Why was it necessary for Jesus to die on the cross? It just seems so barbaric. And borrowing this from I don't know where, I just said, because forgiveness always costs something. When you forgive someone, it costs something. You are burying justice, so to speak. You are abs ab absorbing the cost when you forgive someone. You are saying this, this thing that happened, I'm not going to count it against you. I'm going to absorb it, and I'm not going to hold it against you. I am going to treat you as you need to be treated, not how you deserve to be treated. Does that make sense? That's what forgiveness is. And it comes at tremendous cost for the forgiver. So when God forgives us on, the, on this vertical dimension, nothing short of the cross will do. It cost him everything. And unless we see a king absorbing our 10,000 talents, our, our debt of a gazillion sins, and that same king declaring us righteous, that same king saying, I remember your sin no more. Unless that is ingrained in our hearts, we won't be able to sustainably forgive each other. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgiveness is probably one of the most difficult things that we can do in the Christian life. And it's, it's almost at times inconvenient to be your follower when you require us to forgive indiscriminately, continuously. But Jesus, we, there's no way that we can do this from our own strength, but we do have a chance when we allow ourselves to be filled 
with your word, filled with your spirit, and to act from that place. Lord, we live in a very graceless culture at the moment where forgiveness is not a very popular term. Lord, we pray that in this little community we will be agents of forgiveness. That when people see us and say, why aren't you guys like the rest of the world, that, that it will point to you, that it will point to the fact that we've been forgiven by you and who are we to hold Hold, hold forgiveness back from someone else. Lord, it's, it's easy to say, theoretically, as we did tonight, but it's much harder in practice. And it is our prayer that something of tonight will just sink into our heart and into our bones and that we will be able to practice it. That we will be able to not walk around in our own imprisonment but that we will be able to forgive and reconcile. Thank you, Lord, that you did that with us. On the cross, you forgave us, and you count our sins against us no more, and you brought us back in, and we are reconciled to you. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Amen.